Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 22. We invite you to open in your Bibles to that passage as well. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, the frontline team is coming down right now. We invite you to just raise your hand if you'd like a copy to use for the service, or if you don't have one at home uh, to keep, we'd love to give you a copy of God's word to have for yourself. So again, this is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 22. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, But resembling the Son of God, he continues, a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, and in one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests." This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This is God's word to us. Well, morning everyone. Uh, A few weeks ago, I kind of said... uh, I was talking about the significance of Jesus being the high priest, and I said Matt would carry on the torch for uh, giving you more about Melchizedek. Well, things got uh, switched around, and so here I am again. I get to talk to you about this guy that you might be saying, Melchizedek who? Uh, And if you weren't here a few weeks ago, I get get the privilege of uh, teaching through what I would say is uh, uh, a dense uh, text of Scripture again. 
But uh, we're hoping to uh, really focus in on a few different points than we made last time about uh, Jesus being this high priest who makes, gives us confidence. Our Hebrew series has led us through this book, and it's, it reads more like a sermon. That's why we've been talking about this, uh, the author really as being the preacher, the one who speaks through it. And I, I talked about understanding this high priest role in the Old Testament, how it's vital for us to have confidence that we are actually accepted before God. Doesn't everyone want to know if you, there is a God, am I, what do I need to do to be accepted by him? That's the, that's the key question. And then Matt gave us a difficult two weeks ago, a difficult uh, warning or working through some hard words, our need to grow up in our faith. And then last week brought some encouraging words. How can we trust God? In the, how can we have certainty about God's promise? And so these are the last words of, uh, that we, we, we read last week uh, from the text. It said this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so our preacher here of Hebrews reminds his audience, it's going to become his audience is going to become us eventually here as I uh, try to teach the text. But he reminds his audience that there are deeper and deeper reasons to trust in a superior high priest. But first, we've got to grow up. We've got to be willing to discipline ourselves. We've got to study. We've got to know these hard things at times to understand. But then to open ourselves up to the deep love of God. Like if we don't open ourselves up to this love, we, we will miss out on the incredible message of the gospel. And well, if you were ever asked the question, do you want more confidence in God? More reasons to trust in Jesus? Do you ever ask yourself, I want that, I want that in my life? Well, this is why I believe Hebrews 7 was written for you today. It was written for you to give you confidence. The story of Melchizedek, about this man named Melchizedek. And if we, if we, we need to get this story in our heads. If we don't get who Melchizedek is, none of this makes sense. So I'm going to try to recap it quickly for us here today. We've got to go back. We've got to go back into Genesis chapter 13 and 14 to know the story of what we're talking about with this character named Melchizedek. Abraham, the guy who would become Abraham, the father of the, uh, the Israelites. Uh, they, everyone looks at it as a, the patriarch of the faith. Well, he and his nephew Lot have formed a family and, they're, uh, and they've been traveling around as a family together. And as any good family does, what do they do? They start to fight. Uh, they begin to look. The, ne- the nephew Lot has servants and people and uh, relatives. And they have flocks and sheep and all these things. And Abraham's doing the same thing. And when you get to a stretch of land, who wants the, be- the best land? Who wants the, most, the greenest grass? Who wants the, the best land? And so they begin to fight over this. And so they begin to bicker. And Abraham, though, decides to offer Lot the first choice that it wasn't good for them to be fighting together. So he says, let's go, let's split up. We'll go in one direction, you go in the other direction, and we won't fight anymore about this. So they end up uh, giving Lot, he gives Lot the first uh, choice, and Lot chooses the well-watered green Jordan Valley. It's the most desirable land in front of them, of the two. So he chooses that. But he moves into the shadow of a city called Sodom. 
Anyone ever heard of biblical stories before of, this, of places like Sodom and Gomorrah? Maybe you've heard that, those words before. Well, chapter 13, verse, thir- uh, thir- verse 13, makes a pointed statement about the lands that J- Lot chose that were inhabited by wicked people. Lot saw the benefits. He closed his eyes to the, the down point that he was going to be living in the shadow of one of the most wicked cities known at that time. He didn't see the dangers. And so the two of them, they go separate ways, but Genesis Genesis 14 begins to talk about these tribal warfares that begin to break, out, break through. And you got to think of these kings. And there's a list, a, list, a giant list of kings here. Of, and really, they're, think of them as monarchs over cities. So a king had a city, had an army. But they, there's four or five f- begin to fight against four or five other cities. And we won't give you all the names. If you love uh, names of hard to pronounce, you can read through that. Okay? But uh, they, they begin this tribal warfare, and Lot is sitting in the shadow of one of the cities. What happens? Well, he's a, a prisoner of war. He, uh, they, the, the battle goes on. There's a winner. The winner decides to take Lot, all his stuff, and kidnaps him. Well, Abram uh, finds out that his, his nephew has been kidnapped, is captured. And so he gathers together, it says, 318 trained men to uh, go and rescue him. And the story is rather miraculous in nature. The, the, the idea is that he battles against a, a, a crowd much bigger than himself, and God gives them complete victory in this nighttime attack. Lot is saved, and all the possessions are taken. And it, it's at this point in the story of, in Genesis that Melchizedek enters the picture. Abram's returning uh, to his city. He's returning from the spoils of war. He's returning with all the, the stuff that is, he's taken. And this king of Salem, it reads, Melchizedek comes out to meet him. He brings bread and wine and a blessing to him. And, this, he's, and his name, it's, he's called Melchizedek. And in brackets there in the English text, they'll say, he was a priest of the Most High God. And then this exchange kind of ends, and Abraham gives 10% of all that he has taken. He, the spoils of war, he, he ties 10% of it to this king, this Melchizedek. That's it. That's the story. That's it. That, uh, the story of Abram and Melchizedek, three verses about a mystery man. And then our guy in Hebrews decides to write an entire chapter about it. So 18, uh, 19, 20. Those are the verses that we're, you're going to read in, in chapter 14. You read this story, and if that's all you got, you're, you, you probably are thinking, what's the point? Why would, the, why would, why would you choose this guy as the, the significant comparison? And it says in the verses here, we just read that it resembles Jesus. Why? It just really seems odd, doesn't it? It's not the what I would... I would choose if I was going to pick a character to base my, uh, my sermon around. Were it not for the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek would be little more than a, a little footnote in the stories of, the, of, the, of Genesis. A bewildering, really, moment in the life of Abraham and kind of a moment where we kind of look and see a shadowy figure who emerges and then he just fades away. We don't have anything really more. But what we are meant to see today is that this story is not really about Melchizedek at all. Our preacher in Hebrews, he looks back into an account, and the Holy Spirit, 
I believe this with all my heart, speaks into his life. He gives him clarity here. And he draws a connection that most of us would, would miss. Most of us would read it and go, I don't see uh, Jesus in this story. And here, in, in what was read, Jonathan just read for us here, we read uh, in verses 1 and 2, our preacher reminds his audience of this story. That's what he does. He just wants to take them back. He, this is, they, know the, they know the stories if you're Jew, a good Jew. You know what's going on in those past. So he takes them back. He says, let me remind you of Melchizedek, this story. And then he begins this, it's a sort of a logical argument. I'm going to have to, it's, and it's actually most of the time, I, you really have to read through it carefully because it's quite complex. It's, it's not a, like, oh, that makes uh, obvious, that's really obvious. You have to read through this, the detail of this argument. And the, the, uh, the situation is that it leads from Melchizedek to Jesus. But let's read that again, verses 1 to 3. It says this, for this, Mel- for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram, Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also the king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning or of days or end of life, but resembling the Son of God, and continues a priest forever." What are we going to see here? What's noteworthy? What, where are we going to start as we read this? Well, there's three things I think that are noteworthy. You look back in Genesis and what you see here. Melchizedek is spoken about as both the king of Salem and the high priest of the, uh, the, of the Most High God. Those are the, and the significance of this, and I think I mentioned this three weeks ago, but I want to remind us, is that this is not normal. The office of the king, the, the role of the king, the king was never mixed with the priest. You only see that all of a sudden with Jesus. The king and the priest was, a, was totally two separate roles. They were never mixed together in Jewish history. But we ha- here we have one man holding two, two positions. That's one. Melchizedek's origin and his ending is unknown. We don't, we, we don't get a birth. We don't get a, no record of how he began, how he ended his life, his birth, his death, any of these things. And I'll tell you, the Bible is concerned about those types of things. There is tons of things that were genealogies, who's the father of who, where did this person die, where did this person, was he buried? Almost every major character found in the Old Testament, their story is built out of their birth, their family, and their death. The Bible cares about these things in telling the stories. But here, we have none of that. His birth, Melchizedek's birth is unknown, his origins are unknown, and his ending is unknown. And thirdly here, that modern preachers aren't just making up a bunch of stuff about to, to build out a weird comparison between Jesus. We're not trying to be cool here and just find some hip sort of uh, connection between some Old Testament text, okay? This is... Uh, this is not what we're trying to do here. The, the preacher of Hebrews makes it evident that we need to take a text like this seriously because he says explicitly that Melchizedek resembles who? Jesus. Jesus. Three verses, he resembles Jesus. 
and that his nature of his priesthood lasts forever. Now, the, the danger of a sermon like this is that we can make it all about Melchizedek. I could tell you about all the different commentaries about what they think that who Melchizedek might be, or the, they've, made, they've written entire chapters on those three verses. Many people like the mystery, don't you? You like, who's this mystery man? And let's figure out all the details of his life. But I believe as we, the more we read through Hebrews here, the more that we are supposed to see that, although I believe Melchizedek was a real person, wasn't some angel or some character like that, this, the story is put there because it's not really about him at all. It's put there to tell us something about Jesus. The details of his life are rather insignificant. That's because Melchizedek is, is being used as a, a literary tool here. And this is really, 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 really important for us to get, okay? Because the Bible uses it in, in a number of places when it talks about a literary tool called a type or a prototype. Why does that matter? Melchizedek is a type for Jesus. I want to explain this. Typology give you a definition here. Type, typology. Can we put that up there? Okay. Definition. Typology is a special type of symbolism where an Old Testament story points forward to a New Testament reality. Okay? So an Old Testament story has a New Testament reality. I want to give you a little example of that. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians 5-7 Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you, are really, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now here's what it is. The Passover lamb of Exodus is connected to Jesus. An Old Testament symbol that finds its reality in a New Testament real, uh, place. Jesus is not some actual lamb. We all know this. He's not a lamb. But it's being used as a symbol. The symbol of the lamb, it foreshadows the future sacrifice of death. The spilled blood so that the wrath of God would pass over. So this lamb is a type. And in the same way, Melchizedek is a type. It's a reference there. And what we have in the simplest terms possible is that our storyteller, our orator, he looks back and he reflects on Jesus and he, he takes Jesus and he uses this man, this priest king, to demonstrate the preeminence of Jesus' priesthood and his kingship. And so he uses a, a set of like arguments. And I could really walk through you with every verse, but it's far too, uh, we just don't have enough time today. But I want to build out what this logical argument is. He makes four arguments over the, over the first ten uh, verses here predominantly. The first one is that he says this. There's a connection between blessing and superiority. And so in verse 7, we read this. It says, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the, the superior. And so he wants you to know that in, in the case of blessing... There is a, a superior and an inferior, and it's always the greater who blesses the inferior. Okay? Blessing is important here, because that's what Melchizedek does to Abraham, right? 
Then he, he argues that Melchizedek has pronounced a blessing on Abraham, which he gladly received. Bread, wine, and a blessing. And thus, Melchizedek, he says, must be vastly superior, must be superior to Abraham. That's his argument, which is saying a lot. Because Abraham is the recipient of God's great promises. If I said to you today, based on your Bible teaching so far, that which one is, would you consider a bit greater, Abraham or Melchizedek? Chapters and chapters of, uh, of the life of one person, three verses of another. But in this situation, the, the greater blesses the lesser. That's what, it's say, that's what he's saying here. And then he moves on in his argument. He says, if Abraham was inferior to Melchizedek, then Levi, Levi, the, one of the, the sons of, of Jacob, later on, the Levitical priesthood is, is inferior since Levi was in Abraham. We can actually read that in verse uh, 9 and 10. Read that with me. It says, One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, pays tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So his point is saying that if Abraham was inferior to Melchizedek, then Levi, who is a descendant of of Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek as well. And then his final sort of point here of in his argumentation is, is that this. He says, therefore, the Melchizedekian order of priests is greater than the Levitical order of priests, the ones that descend from Aaron. You might be like, whew, went over my head, Okay. I wrote it down. I don't know if you need to make notes. But that is, 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 that, those are his arguments. There's a, there's a person who pl- pronounces blessing, and that person is superior. Melchizedek pronounces the blessing. Therefore, Melchizedek must be superior to Abraham. If Abraham is inferior and Levi is a descendant of Abraham, then Levi and the Levitical priesthood is also inferior. And therefore, the Melchizedekian order of priests is superior to the Levitical order of priests. We can all go home now. That's the argument. Why is this important at all? You're, we all shake our heads. Okay. Well, you gotta, it's important to the original Jews who were reading Hebrews or hearing Hebrews. Our preacher has over and over again, so far in this story, been declaring that Jesus is what? Greater? Greater than Who? Greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than Aaron, and all things that are, they're saying Jesus is greater over and over again. We keep preaching that every week. But then in poker terms, he pushes all the chips in, okay? He goes all in, and at this point in time, our preacher goes, if you're putting any trust in someone, Abraham, if you revere Abraham, let me tell you who's greater than Abraham. And if you trust the Levitical priesthood, like the lineage of, of being a Levitical priesthood, let me tell you what's greater than the Levitical priesthood. In essence, Jesus is greater than the Abrahamic heritage that you revere as a Jew. 
And it's greater than the Levitical system that you're putting your faith in. And so there's a call that's being said here to an original Jewish audience that's saying, turn from your lineage. Turn from trusting in people that you revere, that you're putting your trust in. Turn from being from the right family. Turn from trusting in a system that will make you acceptable before God. And trust in the gospel. The news that Jesus has made you, makes you righteous. Trust the good news of Jesus. That Jesus is the perfect king. And he is the great high priest. That's what's being said here. And we miss it because we just don't have that heritage in so many of our backgrounds. But we have to hear the original message in order to, to, to capture the urgency of it all. But why is it important to us today? Because this isn't some ancient text that was written only to that audience and has no place for us today. We believe that it speaks to our lives. And so the arguments made, the Genesis account, the ver- and then if we're going to continue on in verses 11 through 22, which we just read, they combine all together to bring great light on the gospel. And it's my job, my job to tell you about the four amazing things that you can see about the gospel as you read through these accounts. This is about our great Savior. Jesus is not the one like Melchizedek. Okay? Melchizedek is the one like Jesus. The greater, let's talk about him. Jesus precedes Melchizedek in creation. Jesus comes after Melchizedek as the human savior and king. And so the, the author is calling Jews to reject people and systems. Do you have people and systems that you have in your life that you're putting your trust in? Do you have systems in place that you're like, if I just do enough more and more, I think, I think God will, will say it's enough. And that's not the gospel at all. There's great depth to the gospel. So there's four gospel realities rooted in the statement. I want to make that statement again. Melchizedek is like Jesus. Let's look at those together. First off, Melchizedek is like Jesus in this way. He is a righteous, I like that, righteous king, you know. For those in the 80s, you'll, you'll know the, the word righteous comes from like a, a Bill and Ted or those kind of things. Uh, but uh, he is a righteous king of peace. So many times, uh, names in scripture mean something. Names hold great meaning in, in, uh, in the Jewish faith. We picked Liam not because we have an Irish bone in our entire bodies. We just thought it was a cool name. Uh, we just liked it. We liked how it rolled off. We didn't pick it because it had a meaning that we hoped his life would become like in the future. But names in the Bible so often mean something. And the name Melchizedek, it, it actually is a compound word that is based on two wor- Hebrew words. The king, Melchizedek, so is, is based on Mel- uh, the king, 
of righteousness. And so that's why he says, it says here, he is first by translation in verse 2, he is first by translation of his name, the king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. And then we find that he is given the title of king of Salem. What does Salem mean? Salem is the word for peace. So our king of righteousness is also the king of peace. That's what, who Melchizedek is like. And so I don't think that's a, just a coincidence that if, that's, if we believe that the Bible is written and that these things are there for a purpose and it's pointing back and he resembles, that means that there's something about these names related to Jesus. And in the, the Genesis account, if you were to read through them for, uh, more closely, you'll see that there's two kings. There's this king of Salem and there's a king of Sodom. And they're brought into comparison because the king of Sodom, Sodom is like a self-aggrandizing like, monarch who, who lives by this sort of label of might is right. He's a, he's, he's a, if, you're, if you're powerful enough, I will bring peace through might. But the king of Salem is contrasted. He's, he's brought before him and that he is a king unlike the king of Sodom. So just as Abraham's victory of the kings brings peace to this land, so the Messiah's victory over enemies brings peace. That's what we're supposed to see. There is a resemblance here between Melchizedek and Jesus, and it reminds us that Jesus did not set up earthly kingdoms. He had every opportunity to lead a, a human revolt against Rome. People were going to follow him. They were ready to follow him into war. But he sets up a different sort of kingdom. Where it's, it's the greater kingdom. It's one of peace. It's a possible peace between humanity and God. And we can point to all kinds of monarchs and leaders in the world today. And I ask you how many of them are leading with a, a hand towards the idea of might is right. And we're reminded over and over again that we as believers in Jesus, as followers of Jesus, that is not our call to lead human rebellions all over the world, but that we are in a revolt. We're in a revolution of love. It's a revolutionary love for each other and for the world around us. And so first off, when we, we see that Melchizedek is like Jesus, we need to see that he is a king a king of righteousness and peace. And that is who Jesus is. So that's our first gospel reality. Second one is this, that he is a permanent priest. And you have to read through, uh, we're going to look over to, turn with me to verses 15 to 17. So we're going to read this together. When Jesus is compared to Melchizedek, it says this, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So as we talked about earlier, uh, Jesus is not uh, uh, descending from the line of Levi. Who is he from the tribe of? Anyone know? We've sing songs about it. The tribe of? 
Benjamin, we've got, and, the, and he's the lion of Judah, right? And so we, it, for any Jew, this would have disqualified Jesus from the, the priestly role. Do you know that? He wasn't from the right lineage to be the priest. But we're reminded here that Jesus is not a priest from Aaron, but from Melchizedek. And this is where the idea that Melchizedek has no beginning, no ending, carries weight. This is why that's important. Because it speaks about this powerful truth of Jesus, that Jesus' priesthood, it runs deeper than lineage. It doesn't matter whose parent it is or how he died, that he has a lineage, that his priesthood runs forever. What's being said about here is, is this, the, the Levitical priests, you know what, they die. These Levitical priests, they die. Not one of them could fulfill the responsibilities of, his mediate, of their mediating work forever. Eventually, it has to be passed on to the next priest. Yet there is a priest who arises according to this order of Melchizedek who endures forever. And what gives this person a right to endure forever? What's, is it, it's not, if it's not lineage, what, what makes him, gives him the right to be the, the, uh, the priest forever? It's because he has conquered death. It says, but by the power of the indestructible life. That is why Jesus has the, the ability to be the priest forever. The power, the right. He is indestructible. The word forever is one for us that is hard to grasp. The gospel calls us to consider the word forever this morning. When I was a child, I, I, began, I tried to contemplate forever. We live in a world where we are so time-centric. Do you ever just step back and think, you know, after the end of my days, it's not just another period of time. My soul will live on forever. It frightened me. I think in a sobering sort of way. Because it, it, it forces us to think that forever is a very long time. It makes us consider the eternal nature of our souls. And so it asks us the question, forever asks you the question, that if you walked out of this room today and you met a tragic end, and it would be a tragic end, people would grieve your life being lost in this moment. But if you were standing there, you would have to face this question of forever and where you will be. This is, the, this is the invitation that so many people have responded to over the years when Billy Graham call, uh, called out. Billy Graham passed away this week. Millions of people have responded, I believe, to the call of this one man's preaching of the gospel. And over and over again, he asked the question of, of people, if you died today... Do you have confidence that you, of where your soul, where your life, who you are at the very core, where you will be, in whose presence or lack thereof? 
Are you choosing a forever relationship with God or forever separation? Because that's the choice. Forever with God or forever separated. That's the very nature of heaven and hell. Although people talk about flames and clouds and floating around on clouds in Philly cheese commercials. The, the very idea of heaven and hell of the, is, is one of being in the presence of God or choosing to be not in the presence, the absence of God. Hell is the absence of God. The great news is that Jesus isn't going anywhere. He is permanent. He is, he, his permanence is that he has become our high priest. He's become the king through the power of his indestructible life. In a world where beauty is short-lived, popularity is fleeting, and wealth can, flare, can fail, Jesus is unwavering. And I ask you this, is, are you trusting in that? Are you trusting in that today? So he is our righteous king and our permanent high priest. And I got to keep going. We got to get, get through this today. He is our better hope for a better covenant. And so our preacher, he turns his attention to the law here in, in verses 18 to 22. And you know how he was talking about his argumentation about the Levitical system? He moves from Abraham to the Levitical system. And then he says, you know that law that you're trusting in? The sacrificial system that you're putting your acceptance in? He makes, he makes this connection to Jesus and he says that there is a change being brought about by the Melchizedek, Melchizedekian priesthood of Christ. We are told that when Christ came, a former commandment was less set aside because of its uselessness and its weakness. And so the primary verses, let's read those together. We need, to, we need to stay in the word here. It says, for on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For with those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who he said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So the primary focus of this verse is that is on the Levitical priesthood and all the uh, all the the sacrifices that come out of it. Now that Christ has come, those things have ceased. You don't need to to keep sacrificing anymore. The weakness of the old has given away to the perfection of the new. The former commands were weak. Not because of there's any defect in the law. No, the law is talked about as being holy. Holy and spiritual. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It's not weakness found in that. But the law is weak because it can't save anyone. It shows us our defects. It shows us our need of a savior. This law does not set us free. 
And so the problem with the law and the reason that Jesus has come is because the law enables us to understand our behavior. I want to give you an example. Does an alcoholic wake up tomorrow and he doesn't drink that day? But all day long he's paralyzed by this sense of fear or as an addiction to the alcohol. Is that person free? Is that person free? Absolutely not. They're not free. In fact, Jesus would attack the same idea like this. Well, you heard it said, don't uh, commit adultery. But if your heart's full of lust, you've committed uh, the sin. You're just as broken. And if he says, don't murder. But if you're always in some sort of rage... You're no better off than a murderer. So the thing about the law is that if we follow the way of the law, we can grit down. We can get get into the the grit part of it and say, I'm going to willpower this till till my day's over. But it has no, it can't overcome our behavior. We cannot overcome behavior unless our heart is transformed. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit and of God. We become conformed to a pattern of religion, but we've never been conformed to a pattern of the Spirit of God flowing through us. And so the reason for the law's weakness is found in humanity, not in God. God made the, the, law, per, uh, the law was perfect. It's our imperfection, our sinful hearts that make the law useless because it can't grant the righteousness that we need. So we don't, but we don't throw away the law. We actually live according to the law. We, We still say these are things to live by, but we do it because we are in response to what God is is doing in, in us already through Jesus Christ. We're being sanctified. We're being made holy, not because of the law, but by the spirit of God that's inside of us. so that we become empowered to live for him every day. And so finally today, our last point, it's going to act as our point, but it's going to act as our response to us as well, is that we talked about him being a permanent priest and a gracious king and the the better hope for the better covenant, but he also brings to us a a greater blessing. Remember how Melchizedek comes out and he gives a blessing he brings wine and he brings bread. Any connections at all can you see there? Uh, bringing wine and bread. But then he brings this blessing. And I want to talk about this blessing for a second. The greater who blesses the lesser. Think about this word blessing. What do you think of when, you, when I say to you a blessed life? Because so many of you, you think like, well, I, I don't lack from anything. Like I, I, I have everything. My fridge is full. I have a house to live in. I live a blessed life. Or if you're one of the older or wiser people in this room, you might say, well, I have my health. And I have, I've got my health into my old age. Well, I'm living a blessed life. What about children? Well, I've got children. They're, they're happy. They're settled. They're doing well in their life. I've got grandchildren. I'm living a blessed life. These are all the things that our culture points to 
in terms of blessing. And it isn't wrong. The Bible actually talks about common grace that God pours out on believers and non-believers that he pours out that our very breath, every one of us, is a blessing from God. But the danger of seeing these as the totality of our blessing means that if you don't have these things, wealth, enough to eat, your health, children that aren't, like, behaving, that in some way God's, like, not blessing my life, that he's in many ways, like, he's cursing me. And we see this all the time, people who become bitter because they believe that um, God hasn't been fair in the distribution of blessings. Look at this person, what they got, and look what I got. And we live in this self-centered sort of reality that, like, I deserve, I deserve blessing. My life, how come I'm not blessed the same way that they they are? And I ask the question, friends, to you today, what sort of blessing do we pursue as followers of Jesus? Does does our sense of blessing look any different than the world around us? Do our pursuits look any different from the world around us? Do you see righteousness, the law of God, as a blessing in your life? Church, will you hear God's voice, what I believe God is speaking to me and to you today in this way, in the light of the gospel, we are Abraham and Jesus is Melchizedek. We are, the, we are the lesser, he is the greater. He is the one who brings and gives blessing to us. And so we receive bread and wine for those who are spiritually hunger and thirsty. And the gospel declares that the greatest Result, the greatest gift of, the, of the accepting the gospel is not the fact that you get heaven, but that you have peace with God. Peace with God. Your very soul has peace. And I love this as I was reading it this week. This is the blessing of salvation. Jesus is our high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek and he is the king of Salem the king of peace for our very souls is this not the greatest news for us that he's given us an opportunity to have peace with God and this translates over to so many areas of our lives so as we close today I want to invite our team we're going to respond now but I want, you, I want to take a moment because so many times we jump right into singing. And I, I, want, I want us, each of us, if, we, if possible, to just close your eyes. We're going to take a minute or two. And I want you to think about blessing in your life. I asked you earlier, like, what is, it, what is your perspective on blessing? If you think about the salvation, about peace with God... How does a blessing like this make you feel? Would you close your eyes and just, maybe you feel far from God about that. Maybe that's not good news to you today. Close your eyes. How does a blessing, the blessing of salvation, make you feel this morning?
Are you seeing Jesus as a blessing today? If you don't see Jesus as a blessing today, if you're not sensing that in your heart, if you're not seeing the gospel, the, the news that you've been made, that you have the opportunity to be peace at peace with God as good news, the greatest blessing in your life, then these are things that we need to just call out to God. We need to pray over and we need to ask God. And so as we respond today, when we pray together, God, we ask for your work in our hearts we call upon you to work in your Holy Spirit to, to bring a blessing, to give us a sense of the, the blessing that you are as a person. Not what you can pour out upon us, not the things that you can give us, but that your very presence that we get to be with you is the greatest blessing in our lives. And one day we will get to be in, in perfect communion with you. But we ask for more of it now so that we might invite others into this peace. So we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Will we stand together? We're going to respond in prayer. If you need prayer today, maybe you're struggling over the things that or you want to respond to the gospel, come down and pray. We have a team that will pray with you. We want to pray for you today. Let's pray.